have just been recording like a new Katyap video for like the past hour and a half or two hours. I don't even know. It's just so I'm just in the mood of like everything is a conspiracy theory. Everything, take it with a grain of salt. But let's just play the devil's advocate. Is it sunny today? It actually really is. I really should hurry up and not have even the intro to this freaking podcast because I'm sweating and you might be able to see. Hopefully you won't see like the underboob sweat. So pleasant, so pleasant. You know what this reminded me of? Listen, this case is grim. You have timestamps in the comments. Feel free to skip to those if you are just here for the grimness of the case. I need to get everything out of my system and then there will be zero jokes, zero lightheartedness to this freaking case. But this uh, beginning of this video, like everything is a conspiracy theory, reminded me of this time like when I studied baccalaureate here when I first came to the UK and we have to do this course which is called theory of knowledge which is technically philosophy i fucking hated every single minute of it mostly because there was this cunt sitting next to me and then they would be like oh discuss like i don't know a concept and they would be like well what about what they have been telling us about the sky and the sky being blue how do we know it is truly blue and I just looked at me and was like, what the fuck? What am I actually doing with my life? I have asked that myself so many times throughout my life. Like, what am I doing in this very situation? Because, like, why is this guy making a philosophical thing out of it? And then the teacher responded, oh, yeah, what if it is? Let's discuss. I'm like, what, what is there to discuss, babe? It's like, oh, water can be drunk. Like, yeah, there are certain things that maybe you shouldn't question. And that comes from me. And I make you question everything, every freaking time. The whole motto of this whole podcast is one motive at a time. I make you question everything. And even I say, like, let the sky be blue, okay? Okay, now that I have screamed at literally every single person that might be joining me on this journey, Jesus... Hi, welcome. This is by all means necessary. It is a true crime podcast where at the beginning of every episode, or most of them, I have a freaking meltdown <laughs> over a completely unrelated topic. Then we dive into the expression of the day because I like to do extra research for no particular reason and linguistics is something I'm interested in. Hey, or languages, not really. You're not really teaching them grammar and shit. And then at some point, emphasis on the timestamps in the description box, you do have a whole true crime case and yes, I do talk to myself sometimes in between all of these sections or in between just the comments on the case. But yeah, today I'm bringing you such a heartbreaking case, so I just had to have a meltdown and now we should not drop your phone on the ground. Jesus, why are you so twitchy today? <sighs> I miss Twitches freaking Kate Yap underneath her table. Yeah, are you gonna spoil the Kate Yap Minnesota? Hey, stay tuned. Kate Yap Minnesota part two is coming for you this very Friday. No. By the time this episode is a year a week behind, so it will be part three. Okay. I don't know what I'm talking about. Mostly <laughs> in part three, so let's not spoil part two for the people either. <laughs> They might be doing a binge, Maya. Okay, the expression of the day. <laughs> Jesus. 
is one super dear to my heart. I probably say it a couple of times every single day. And that is batshit crazy. What does it mean? Well, it means like somebody's fucking insane, okay? Like somebody has reached the level of madness that is like unfathomable to the humankind. A mini break for wiping the sweat off my face. <laughs> I forgot what it's like to record in the summer without the aircon in the house. The origin of this very expression comes from the old-fashioned term bats in the belfry. Belfry is the alarm tower, sort of like a watchtower with just like the ding-dong alarm bell on the top of it. And old-fashioned churches had a structure on the top that is called the belfry, which housed the church bells, so it would make a lot of noise. And bats, if you didn't know, are very sensitive to the noise, which, hey, you live and you learn. I learned this. I did not know this until this very moment. I mean, the moment when I was writing the script. <laughs> the definition of a ghostwriter, by It's like, who wrote this script, bitch? And they would not inhabit the belfry of the active church because the bells would obviously run often. So the original expression, when somebody would say bats in the belfry, well, what that meant is there's nothing going on there because there are no bats in the belfry, meaning nothing is going on here, like upstairs, in, in your freaking brain. Like my dad would say, the ears are just connected with a the wire. There's like zilch, zero brain cells in there. So thinking about that, when these churches would be abandoned, obviously the bells weren't ringing, so the bats would come back and then they would shit all over the place, okay? Let me tell you, they would shit all over that place. So, batshit crazy is the next level, is the next level nuts. Because not only are the bats not there, they're there, they're fully there, and they're shitting all over the place. <laughs> These belfries are coated in batshit, meaning the craziest of the crazy are bad shit crazy. You took this task way too seriously. I feel like you might identify with this expression more than any of the others really, Maya. Which brings me to, if you are bad shit crazy over this podcast, if you're all about it, make sure you like, you subscribe, you subscribe on YouTube, you leave a good positive Apple review, don't leave me the bad ones for the love of God, I don't wanna like have to drag people on the internet. <laughs> and track you down by your username. Please don't do that to me. And make sure you subscribe on all of the platforms because it really helps out with like the numbers and making me, you know, have some like street cred in the podcasting world. But now, <laughs> let's bring the mood right down. Right down from the watchtower, from the bells, right into the freaking well. Because this is the story that I'm telling you today. 130. The camera does not look like at the right angle. <laughs> Can't do this. It's today. Gonna be a good day. No. Has the microphone failed me with one of the weirdest intros ever? Yes. It's just setting the tone for this whole episode, isn't it? In 2016, a US student was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in a North Korean camp. He was released a year later in the vegetative state, with the North Korean government getting away with the miscarriage of justice by all means necessary. This is the story of Otto Warmbier.
In February 2016, with the portraits of North Korea's supreme leaders wearing a cream-colored jacket and a tie, Otto Warmbier appeared in front of the North Korean media. After I planned in detail to accomplish my plan, I arrived in Pyongyang on December 29th, 2015, through Beijing. On the early morning of January 1st, 2016, I committed my crime of taking out the important political slogan from the staff-only area of the Yangokto International Hotel, aimed at harming the work ethic and the motivation of the Korean people. After committing my crime against the people and government of the DPR Korea, I was detained on January 2nd, 2016, at the Pyongyang International Airport. I have been very impressed by the Korean government's humanitarian treatment of severe criminals like myself and of their very fair and square legal procedures in the DPR Korea. I understand the severity of my crime and I have no idea what sort of penalty I may face. But I am begging to the Korean people and government for my forgiveness. And I am praying to the heavens so that I may be returned home to my family. I apologize to every one of the millions of Korean people. And I beg that you see how I was used and manipulated. My reward for my crime was so much smaller than the reward that the Friendship United Methodist Church and the Z Society get from the United States administration. The United States administration used me, like many before me. I am a victim of the United States administration's consistent hostile policies against the DPR Korea. I wish that United States citizens who may follow in my precedence never, never allow yourselves to be allured by the United States administration. Through my tour in this country, I have come to see that reality in the DPR Korea is very different from the state of evils that the West had. And I have come to see that the current human rights issues in the DPR Korea, consistently highlighted by the United States administration, is nothing more than an excuse to harm and eventually overthrow the government of the DPR Korea. My dear United States citizens, seeing is believing, as the proverb goes. Please, come to Pyongyang, which one United States citizen long ago called in Eastern Jerusalem. Then, you will believe me. Once again, I want to beg for forgiveness. Please, people in government of the DPR Korea, I beg that you see how I was used and manipulated. Please, act to save me. Save my life. Please, do not only think of me. Please forgive me for my family. I am the oldest son in my family. My mother needs me. My father needs me. My younger brother and my younger sister need me. I have made the single worst decision of my life. But I am only human. I beg that you consider that. And I beg that you find it in your hearts to give me forgiveness and allow me to return home to my family. I also beg that journalists accurately and objectively report my story and provide help of any kind. Thank you all for giving me this opportunity. 
After this press conference, my family will come to know about my current situation. I am very worried that they may be harmed. And like I was manipulated by the United States administration. I am worried that they may be threatened or harmed by those from the government. I beg for any kind of public protection for my family. One final time, people in government of the DPR Korea, I beg for forgiveness. I never should have allowed myself to be a lord in the United States administration to commit a crime in this country. I wish that the United States administration never manipulate people like myself in the future to commit crimes against foreign countries. I entirely beg you, people and government of the DPR Korea, for your forgiveness. Please, I have made the worst mistake of my life. Please, think of my family. Even without watching this on YouTube, it is easy to understand that this was definitely scripted by the North Korean government. He does say seeing is believing. During the 27 minute long video that you can watch on YouTube, he does say he put the quietest boots, the best for sneaking, and that he removed the North Korean propaganda at the prompting of a local Methodist church. As you could see from the clips that I have put in, he has blamed that this was all orchestrated by the US government. But this particular thing didn't really make sense because Otto was Jewish and he was not affiliated with the Methodist Church. So people speculated that maybe that was part of him signaling to everybody else that this was indeed scripted. By the time of this conference, Otto has been held in the labor camp prison in North Korea for over a month. And whether you think that maybe he was tortured or at best psychologically tortured in order for the people holding him to at least take note of his tone of voice and something that he would say, and then he has put into the clues about like Methodist church and things like that into that speech so that people know that, hey, this was staged. Or whether you think that he was actually physically tortured just because of the way he walks into the room and especially because of the way that he leaves the room. He seems to be more dragged than actually walking on his own. And even when he enters, it kind of seems as if he was dragging his feet at that very time. You can really see a broken man, especially when he speaks about his family and he pleads for forgiveness and for technically nobody to do anything to his family. He can't contain his emotions by the end of this video and it's so heartbreaking to watch. So the question is, why was Otto confessing in front of the North Korean media? What had he or had he not done? Let's dive into his background. So Otto was born on December the 12th, 1994. He's the oldest child in the family of five. And the warm beers come from the small suburb that's called Wyoming in Ohio, where his dad owned a small business. Otto was popular in school, he attended the best high school in the state, and was also the prom and the homecoming king. At his graduation, he held a speech as the salutatorian, the second highest ranking student in the year. He was also a talented athlete. Nobody had anything wrong to say about Otto, he played on the soccer and the swim teams. 
and his friends described him as a sports fan who can reel off stats about seemingly any team, a friendly Midwesterner who can break down underground rap lyrics, a deep thinker who would challenge himself and others to question their place in the world, an insatiably curious person with a strong work ethic and a delight in the ridiculous. He started studying economics and commerce at the University of Virginia, and during 2015 he actually traveled to London to complete a course at the London School of Economics as well, sort of like, I think it was a summer course or like an exchange program, aligning himself on the pathway to become a banker. Otto was no stranger to traveling. He traveled to Cuba before, as I mentioned, to London. And he also went to Hong Kong to like study abroad program for like a semester. So that fall, just as he was to continue his third year at university, Otto decided why not travel one last time just after Christmas, refuel the batteries, and then I can come back, I can get into the books and finish this year with the grades that I need to have in order to get this job after this uni. This is when Otto decided to go to North Korea and he probably just googled like North Korea tours and the first thing that came up was this China-based company called Young Pioneer Tours that boasted on their website that they were to provide budget travel to destinations your mother would rather you stayed away from. So just after Christmas 2015, he met with the other young pioneers in China and boarded a flight to Pyongyang. And Pyongyang, the North Korea's capital, apparently isn't just like any other capital where, you know, they kind of welcome you in. The best one for me was definitely in Edinburgh, in Scotland. I literally just walked out as if it was like a bus station. I was like, uh, anybody checking my passport and stuff? I mean, we were coming from London, but still, I was like, wow. Wow, Scottish people, like, immediately, immediately fell in love with it. Immediately. Just, this is how you win me over. Well, <laughs> they did not win Otto over. They immediately confiscated their cameras, just flicking through each and every photo on their smartphones, making sure that they're not bringing anything in. But these practices might seem strange to you and me, but were something that was happening in North Korea regularly. So let's just go back in history for you to possibly even be able to understand the experience that he has had traveling through this travel agency, and in particular traveling to North Korea. North Koreans experienced long history of animosity with the US, with the Korean War in the 50s, resulting in the US killing 20% of their population, which gave them a reason to start sending anybody they would suspect to be US spies to the prisons, which were technically labor camps. And the conditions in these labor camps are just tragic. There's like two variations to it. One is you are working for like 15, 16 hours a day, just hard labor, working in the sun, not really many meals, nutritious meals, or like somebody giving you water or anything like that. And there are people that reported like being fed off mice in their cell, where it would literally be hunting grounds where they would like kill a mice in order to consume it. Anything that they could find, people would use to commit suicide. So 
there was one instance where like somebody um, took like the mercury part of the thermometer to basically poison on it and again I think in this case was unsuccessful and this was a US citizen that was later released but because of just the effects and the PTSD that they have had in the aftermath they eventually did end up taking their own life and then on the other hand if you are not in labor camp all the time well you are being tortured and there's not really a time marker when the restrictive policies and propaganda began but it was around this time with all of the information being supported by the north korean government so no outside journalism no investigative journalism nothing no outside information allowed And by 1956, around 30,000 people were in prison for trivial offenses, like one of these that we will speak about today, that the North Koreans said were against the state. Then in 1968, North Korean patrols intercepted the USS Pueblo spy ship on their territory, capturing and transferring the crew of 83 men to Pyongyang for imprisonment and further torture. In the 90s, Kim Jong-un took over, tourism expanded, which you might consider super strange. How the hell would they suddenly be accepting tourists? Well, usually through these programs, through these agencies that would further globalize their propaganda, that would further expand their agenda about North Korea being the best at everything that they do. So these tours would also go to different places like the location of USS Pueblo incident, for example, for people to instill North Korean values into their tourists. So like all of those tours, you wouldn't just be able to go wherever the hell you wanted to go. No, you would go sightseeing where they wanted you to go, where the propaganda was the strongest. So Otto, being with one such group, was guided on the excursion of the 1968 Pueblo event. And not just that, but they had to stay at the Hotel of North Korean's Choice, which was dubbed Alcatraz of Fun, apparently like the direct translation from Korean. The premise of this hotel is to have everything so that you don't want to leave. So Alcatraz of Fun, being known that because of its island location, had a bar, a sauna, a message parlor, and also its own bowling alley. And another tidbit that Otto and his friends were immediately clued in onto As they entered the elevator, there was no button for the fifth floor. On the night of New Year's Eve, the young pioneers went to drink at this bar, and then they moved the New Year's celebrations to the Pyongyang's main square. And after coming back to the hotel from the square, some of the young pioneers headed to the bar. And this friend of Otto's that was later interviewed went bowling, and he seems to have lost track of Otto. And it was only later, like after discussing it obviously with other people, that he realized that Otto was unaccounted for for the next two hours. Where could have Otto been? Could it be that somebody just didn't account him for and tell them like, oh, he was actually with me? Or could he have been on the forbidden fifth floor? This fifth floor, according to the footage of some people that would sneak by the stair entrance and exit, had propaganda all over the walls. And also people have recorded that it had surveillance systems, where the North Koreans apparently spied on everybody within this hotel. 
and possibly had a cameras in the rooms. The footage doesn't actually go in because obviously maybe somebody was in there and they would get caught on this footage system. So it literally just shows all of the walls with violent propaganda against the Americans. And on this night, on the 1st of the 1st, 2016, these cameras show someone taking a poster off the wall and putting it on the ground. Watching this footage, you tell me if you believe that it is Otto. For all I know, this might as well have been a ghost. It is so blurry, there are absolutely no way to, like, tell anything about this footage, possibly to measure the height based on, like, the walls, but there's just literally no identifying features that you could for sure look at this footage and be like, oh yeah, this is that person. And of course, when you and I hear something like this, well, we are like, okay, so somebody went on a forbidden floor and then, what, took a poster and put it on the ground. Wow, what a crime. But of course, they're going to blow this out of proportions and say that this is actually unconstitutional and it is crime against their state. When Grattan returned to his hotel room, Otto was already asleep. So for all he might have known, he just went to bed and like slept all the way through. So the next day, the two of them wake up and the group continues sightseeing and then heads to the airport. And now at the airport, at the passport control, Grattan and himself were the last two people to go through. So they hand over the passports and one guy points at Otto and points to the door. And this is when two security guards come from that door and take Otto away. And Grattan said like he made a comment that he basically regretted ever since. He sort of jokingly said, well, we won't be seeing you again. And then Otto kind of like laughed at him. And that is the last he saw of his friend. Because the two of them boarded a plane and they were kind of like, okay, so he's coming in, right? He's gonna walk in through the door and come in. And then Otto wasn't. And then they flew all the way to the US. And then it was when, you know, his parents, the authorities were actually alerted that hey, this is what happened and we don't know what's going on with Otto anymore. And the blackout actually remains. His family can't hear from him. He is just in this prison. And then we pick up with that statement that I played at the beginning of the podcast episode from the conference about month, month and a half after this, after he was imprisoned. 16 days after the conference, on March 16, 2016, Warm Beer's trial took place, of course, in North Korea, of course, with none of his family members present. He was charged with subversion under Article 60 of North Korea's criminal code, solely relying on that footage and, well, the confession that he has written and that was staged during that conference. And for taking that propaganda poster off the wall, he was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor. As he's being held in prison, his friends are having their graduation from uni and they're handing out free auto stickers and his family is despairing. They're getting United Nations on it, they're getting negotiators on it, they're trying just desperately to at least have a phone call, to at least hear from their son and to just even start off with a proof of life. But what will come to later is that Otto actually probably suffered the brain damage the very next month, right after his trial. 
Why? Well, let's talk about the negotiations. So as he was in prison, a couple of negotiators are put on the job, including Robert King, Robert King heading these negotiations because he was a guy that negotiated Americans' release from North Koreans' jails before successfully. And then Ohio Governor John Kasich connected Warm Beers with Bill Richardson, who was the former governor of New Mexico and also the ambassador of the United Nations. And Bill Richardson was actually leading this foundation that specialized in under-the-radar fringe diplomacy. Basically, you know how America has that policy like where they don't negotiate with terrorists? Well, well, that is at least publicly, because under the table they do negotiate for the release of hostages from hostile regimes or criminal organizations. Soon Otto's case was taken up by the newly appointed U.S. Special Representative for North Korea policy, called Joseph Yoon. At this point, though, Pyongyang refused to speak to the Obama administration, and the Obama administration was really judged for not being proactive when it comes to this case. But because this was 2016, Trump soon got inaugurated. And when Trump won, actually Richardson compared this to the release of the American hostages in Iran at the beginning of Ronald Reagan's presidential term. So they were like, okay, this is the time. If there has ever been the time, we have to reach Trump now, because of course he has a lot to prove and he would be looked upon favorably if he was to actually manage to release Otto Warmbier. And also know that it's not just like Bill Richardson and Robert King were like sitting on their ass waiting to see who is going to get elected. They actually would meet with the correspondents from North Korea for about half a year, discussing the possible terms of release. This was going so painstakingly slowly, like, I cannot even imagine even those that have been obviously released to the public successfully. The level of PTSD that you can go through, like, while people are negotiating your release for months, like the months of hard labor, the just the physical and psychological torment that people have gone through, just because, well, of the criminal codes of this country to begin with, but then of how slowly these negotiations would be. Every few weeks between February 2016 and August 2016, either Richardson or his senior advisor would travel to the city to meet with their connection from North Korea in different restaurants, hotel lobbies, coffee shops near the United Nations. They would be holding these negotiations with their representatives. And they suspected that this was obviously directed by Kim Jong-un, who was just directing them to sort of like lead them on, lead them on, just so he can finally refuse all of their demands and then continue and then do it over and over again. The timing in this story really didn't work into its favor because this is also when Kim's half-brother was apparently assassinated, allegedly, allegedly assassinated by him, which US would then go on to condemn in the media. So that prolonged negotiations for other two months. Then another thing that didn't work into their favor was that in 2017, when Trump took over and assumed the presidency, North Korea's nuclear weapons program was developing at a faster rate than the US government thought they were. 
Well, this led Trump to mark North Koreans as terrorists and also to even increase the U.S. military presence around the Korean peninsula, obviously sparking up the speculations of who will attack first, is there going to be like a nuclear conflict between the countries. Now, because of this whole agenda, because of these summits that Trump had to have with the North Korean officials in order to denuclearize North Korea, well, he realized that actually supporting Warren Beer fits into his agenda. It fits into his policy. When Otto was in prison for around 17 months, Joseph Yoon, who continued to demand access to Otto, one day in early June was surprised by a call urgently asking him to meet one of the North Koreans' representatives. And he was obviously alarmed because he knew something must have happened for them to urgently request this meeting. When Yoon met up with them, they informed him that Otto was actually unconscious. So he goes back, discusses it with his secretary, and realizes now is the time that they need to put the pressure for the North Korean authorities to actually allow them to go to Pyongyang right away. So the air ambulance is sent. There is this whole DW documentary that I have watched that focuses on this particular mission. Just like if you are interested in this next part we're going to talk about, there's like 45 minutes of it. In terms of how they actually got the air ambulance sent and like what that doctor has witnessed on the scene of the crime. So what I have here is practically a summary of that. So the parents are still kind of optimistic because they didn't really tell them the state of affairs, like what state they're going to find Otto in. So this air ambulance, this plane is dispatched. And the only piece of information that they have had was the one stating that Otto was in a coma. Yoon and the emergency doctor Michael Flukiger traveled to Pyongyang and then they were immediately taken to the Friendship Hospital. This hospital was the clinic where only foreigners were treated and they found Otto lying in the room, and they found Otto seemingly on the surface well taken care of. He was lying in the room marked the intensive care unit, unresponsive and with a feeding tube stuck in his nose. So this doctor, Michael Flukiger, actually goes by Otto. He's like checking for, you know, different like maybe scarrings on his body and as he approaches him he kind of claps his hands next to Otto's ear and there was just no response so he immediately knew like he had his own children and just like the sadness took over him he knew like this has something to do with the brain damage because otherwise he would have been reacting to like at least a clap so close to his ears. As they're in this clinic, the two North Korean doctors explain that Otto actually arrived at this hospital in this exact same condition over a year before and show them like the proof, like the handwritten charts, that the fact that they have monitored him and well taken care of him so well for all of this time and also showing that he has suffered extensive brain damage. And after looking at those charts and obviously examining Otto, Michael did say that they have undoubtedly so taken care of him in a sense like they performed tracheotomy. So he only had like tracheotomy scars in order for the machines to technically breed for him. And he was in a state of unresponsive wakefulness. 
So he possessed some basic reflexes, but was not showing any signs of awareness. And technically, the machines were doing the job of keeping him alive. So, of course, I reckon within that first hour that they're on the scene there, they're like, okay, so uh, we are taking him home, right? This is why we are here in the first place, clearly taking him back to his parents. But even that wasn't that straightforward. A judge actually had to appear to sign off on that and to return him his passport because, of course, he was a prisoner. His documents were also taken away from him. Now, of course, a question comes to mind. Why did a judge sign off on it? If it wasn't for the sheer fact that he knew that Otto will not live, will not recover, and by default will not be able to go back to one of their labor camps. As soon as this was signed off, the doctor and Joseph Yoon embark Otto onto the plane. And there is this like shot where they're taking Otto off the plane, like in the US, where literally like he needs to be carried in a sort of lying position just by the arms and the hands. And his father, Fred, said when they were taking him off the plane and sort of like when he was just about to meet him, he just heard this guttural inhuman howling and wondered like, oh, is that the plane? Like, is this coming from a machine? And then as soon as he saw Otto, he realized it's coming from him, who was strapped to the stretcher, just violently jerking and wailing. And as Otto is brought to the U.S. hospital, they soon realize like they won't be able to revive him. The brain damage is irreversible. And as he's lying on the bed, like his parents are obviously like, you know, taking pictures as evidence for them and he kind of had like a small scar on one of his legs and his feet looked kind of deformed like as if you know like when they're relaxed in a way but it's not normal way like I'll put the pictures in the YouTube video they're just kind of like going inwards this could be due to the brain damage but they're not you know, like in a relaxed position as if you were just to be lying down on bed, they're kind of moved inwardly. And another alarming thing that I noticed was the bottom part of his jawline. So like his teeth weren't as straight as they were before. It kind of seems as if they were inverted in a way, maybe with pliers or something else. So they weren't out, all of the teeth were there, but it seemed as if somebody maybe removed them and put them back in place. Six days later, his parents decided to switch off the machines that he was hanging on, and the funeral took place. On June the 22nd, 2017, a funeral for Otto was held at Wyoming High School, where more than 2,500 of his classmates and family members attended. And his family didn't want him to have a surgical autopsy. There are speculations online on why, why not. It might be because of their religion. But during the regular autopsy, a few things came to light. This coroner said that both sides of his brain suffered simultaneously, which would in turn show that he was probably not tortured. I have read, like, again, I've listened to Red Handed who think that he wouldn't have been tortured because obviously if he was to receive, like, a blow to the head, well, that would hit one side. It wouldn't make sense for his brain to have both sides equally damaged. But something that I was thinking of that I haven't seen anywhere, even after, like, doing a deep dive into this, 
And yes, this fully might have been inspired by like shows like Narcos. But what if the torture wasn't, I mean, this is still physical in a way, but what if he was held upside down with literally like all of the blood flooding into his brain? Because that is damaging to the brain as well. If he is held in one same position, would that have caused maybe simultaneous brain damage? I'm just thinking of everything because this is the option that I haven't seen discussed anywhere in a way, which again might mean that I just don't know what I'm talking about. Or it might mean that, hey, this isn't like the traditional way of torture, but it's still pretty much it. The lead neurologist who treated Otto when he arrived back concluded that his brain damage most likely resulted from the loss of blood flow to the brain for a period of 5 to 20 minutes. This is why I mentioned it, because what if he was held in that position where like literally all of the blood is draining into your brain and then he was maybe, you know, put onto the ground in like a normal position and then all of the blood drained out of it. Again, I don't know how this works anatomically, biologically, chemically, but just afford to sort of put another possible theory out there. Because I hate to tell you, but to this day, it still remains unclear how he was deprived of oxygen, but that was his cause of death. Also, what the coroner reported was that there was no systematic beating, meaning that the body would show, you know, if there was some damage to the organs before, no matter how hard North Korean doctors try to mask it. And even if any of the fractures were healed, well, that would have shown on the scans. The point of contention that people had were really with Otto's teeth. This coroner has said that there is no way that somebody would just misalign the teeth. Like, again, that would show in its roots. So even if they were removed and then replaced or even just like twisted and turned, I hate this teeth whole situation. Teeth and eyes are just the things where I'm like, no, stop it. I actually feel the freaking pain on my skin. Long story short, there is no way that somebody would have twisted and turned his teeth without the roots showing that they have been misaligned. But his parents would continue to drive the narrative that he was actually tortured, most probably with pliers, that his teeth were straight. I didn't see the dental records before and after, I only saw the afterpath, so that could be good as a proof or like as some form of comparison. And also they said that that small scar that they have seen on his leg is actually caused by the multiple applications of electrical shocks. And this particular thing, again, I'm not discarding anything just because of how I saw his legs were placed. Because that's not really fully explained whether that could be due to a electrical shocks or the brain damage. Is that why his body is shaped in this position? Two versions of events that people do lead to. One was that he was either tortured or that the conditions and the deprivation, obviously, from his family, from seeing anybody, speaking to anybody, even regardless of the conditions of the labor camp, led him to actually try to commit suicide. So that possibly he has done it in such a way, whether it was, you know, mercury poisoning or whatever, he could do where he deprived his body of 
oxygen for what did I say, five to 20 minutes. And then they discovered him and tried to obviously repair it, but it was too late. So he didn't fully commit suicide and die, but his brain suffered a lot of damage. The second version of events as to his brain damage and how he might have gotten it was that he might have been given a sleeping pill. So this other coroner that examined his body claimed that warm beer might have been given too high of a dose of sedatives by prison staff. The sequence of events here is that maybe because of the conditions, because of the squalor in those prison cells, Otto contracted botulism. Now, I had no idea. I had to Google everything about this. So botulism is a rare, emphasis on rare, illness that is caused by toxins produced by bacteria. So the disease starts off with weakness, with blurred vision, feeling tired and trouble speaking. And this then is followed by weakness of the arms, chest muscles and legs. And notice that conference that we spoke about at the beginning of the video and how I said, well, maybe, you know, he was already dragging his legs. So it can be gradual and then they say, okay, so they gave him some sedatives to, you know, for him to feel more comfortable. And he sort of fell into a coma after taking a sleeping pill. Again, plausible, but sounds a lot more complex. There are different kinds of botulisms, because of course I went into like a freaking rabbit hole on this. So it can be foodborne, meaning like somebody ate some food that had bacteria on it that hasn't been properly preserved, cooked, canned. Yeah, watch the food you eat. I mean, I doubt it will be the freaking food that, if anything, they have given them in North Korean prisons, but just watch it. And then the second one, wound botulism. This is where an open wound is infected with bacteria. And in turn, that kind of well would support the idea that he has either hurt himself while laboring at this camp, or maybe that he was indeed tortured and we just weren't able to actually see that on like any of the scans. And another fact why his family is buying into the theory of torture uh, was, well, that that is what the US government was driving as a whole team at the time. After his death at the State of the Union, Trump actually invited his family showcased them as victims, propagated the North Korean agenda. He tweeted that Otto was actually tortured to death and has just used this poor family to further strengthen his political agenda. He passed away just days after his return. Otto's wonderful parents, Fred and Cindy Warmbier, are here with us tonight, along with Otto's brother and sister, Austin and Greta. Please. You are powerful witnesses to a menace that threatens our world, and your strength truly inspires us all. Thank you very much. Thank you. But in 2019, after some of these summits, the relations between Kim and Trump became warmer. So he changed his tune around. Because you see, then he said that Kim 
didn't actually know about it. He told him, no, no, Kim told Trump. He didn't know, he didn't have any idea. He was unaware. He was aware that there was a poster taken off a freaking random hotel's wall. But no, he was not aware that Otto was, you know, sent to the labor camp, tortured and all of that. Mm. So later he would give a press conference saying that the top leadership knew nothing about it. And basically just left his parents that he used when he needed them just to hang there and just be seen as what they invented this whole agenda, which technically came from him. And I first heard about this case when Hostage podcast podcast that I wish, I wish, I'm just going to put this in the universe somewhere. Uh, I wish I hosted it because, well, they kind of are on a break or hiatus or just completely neglected that podcast. And I want to revive it. Okay, podcast research gods have me on it, right? Right. I need to make it big just to host, just for Hostage to come back into my life because it's one one of their best podcasts. I, just, I refuse to believe that not enough people listen to it. Anyways, went off a tangent. So I heard about their two-parter there. And I think this might be one of their last episodes that they have done before just dropping it. Okay, can you stop? Can you come the fuck down? So, <laughs> can you come the fuck down? Obviously, the time has passed and I have researched about like a hundred cases since then. So I didn't remember in particular that this was such a contention point that the cause of death could have been all of these different things and that nobody really had it defined. But unfortunately, as I seem to be the bearer of all the bad news today, unless Otto Warmbier becomes the center of somebody else's political agenda anytime soon, I genuinely don't think we will ever know or have a satisfactory answer that would satisfy both his family and the public. In the aftermath of the events, the American courts ruled that Otto's family was owed the excess of 500 million by the North Korean government. Luckily, the one thing that I feel Trump did well, I hate complimenting Trump on anything, but his administration reinstated North Korea to the state sponsors of terrorism because, you know, remember that first couple of years, he was basically saying they were terrorists. So that allowed the Warmbier family to sue North Korea as citizens injured in acts of state-sponsored terrorism and to take legal actions. And also, I believe it was because of that, but it could be a completely different reason. I think the U.S. government paid the bill for like his hospital records because just imagine the audacity they actually fucking charged the u.s government well warm beers and the u.s government with like a two million bill for the stay of auto warm beer in the north korean hospital in that clinic just the nerve of the fact that the family didn't even know that he was there for a year and then well that he was there in the vegetative state and due to the fault of North Koreans, whatever, however innocent this was, and then just be like, oh, $2 million. And it's also unclear whether or not Trump actually paid for this. So U.S. government is still hiding so much shit surrounding this whole event. It's just the political crimes are just not it. I'm going to tell you, I do not get satisfactory answers with the political crimes. And that is truly the conclusions I'm having for you this month. 
In the end, Warm Beers ended up calculating the estimated minimum amount of damages based on the average salaries University of Virginia graduates would have earned. So what Otto would have learned had he followed his intended career path. And they kind of rounded this up to $1.45 billion. But I think the decision was that they were only entitled to 150000 in punitive damages and then the same amount in compensatory damages each, as well as the same amount in punitive damages to his estate and more than $21 million in compensatory damages to his estate. So by the end of this, they got, what, less than $22 million out of $1.5 billion that they asked for at least from my source materials. Somebody do correct me if you know otherwise, but no money will ever replace Otto, and again, no freaking compensation will ever replace this whole experience. The fact that they were in isolation, not even being able to hear from Otto for 17 months, and then this being the outcome. And the compensations are not where this family is stopping. They're actually looking into North Koreans continuing to run illegal operations out of their embassies in the countries within Europe and also Russia. Fred, his dad, said these are illegal businesses and we will work to close them down. We anticipate that we would go and take a look at those situations and see if we could make a difference there. We just want to see what the laws are there and how people feel about the laws. And warm beers are continuing to hit North Korea where it truly hurts them. Its pocketbook and the international legitimacy. They know that this is what its president and the regime truly care about. And as such, they know that this is the only way to make some substantial significant difference. Now, that is the case of Otto Warmbier. And now let's talk a bit about the motivations. The one thing that I see here, and I mean, in so many political crimes as well, is the idea of imprisoning him in the first place and then using Otto's life as a bargaining chip in order to make him a scapegoat. Scapegoating being the hostile tactic employed to characterize an entire group of individuals according to the unethical or immoral conduct of a small number of individuals belonging to that group. Here I'd like you to remember that first conference where basically Otto was forced to say that he has done this because the American government made him do it and has begged the US government to consider never asking its citizens to go to the foreign country that are treating him in this humanitarian way to repeat his mistakes. And that in itself did not come as the message from Otto, rather as the message from North Korea, directly aimed at the US government. And we really shouldn't forget that as much as he was a scapegoat for the North Korea, he was one for the US as well. He was the person used by the US in order to prove that this is indeed how North Korea operates, in order to prove that they are the terrorists, that the history will repeat itself, and that this is how the US intellectuals, possible spies will still be treated even 60 plus years after the Korean War. I'd like to end this episode with a quote from Otto, because when I read this, I was like, oh my god, Otto was the fan of The Office, the American Office, of course, of course, the, the better one, like, don't come for me, British Office fans, I swear to god. 
But when I read this, I was like, oh my god, this is this is a kick in the freaking balls. This was the part of his salutatorian speech. When the time came for him to give a speech at his high school graduation, instead of orating grandiosely, he admitted to struggle to find words. He took as his theme a quote from The Office. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days, he told his peers, before you've actually left them. Keep making the world a better place, one motive at a time, and I will see you guys this Friday.